So, today is chapter 3 of the book of Titus. Um, we're finishing the series. It's only a three-part series, and it says part 2. I wonder how that happened. I missed that. Um, sound doctrine, sound practice, a very exciting subject, um, as I know you like that, uh, the name of that series, but it's, it's really, really uh, simple that sound doctrine is healthy, whole, spiritually, biblically accurate teaching of the Bible, and it always leads to healthy, spiritual living, always, okay? There isn't such a thing as sound doctrine separated from living. That's the intention of the Bible. And that's what the book of Titus is all about. Today we're going to talk about the need for spiritual trans- transformation. One of the worst naval peacetime disasters in history occurred 90 years ago today, September 8, 1923. It happened during a training exercise off the California coast, northwest of Los Angeles, near uh, what was then called Honda Point, and now is on, actually on the Vandenberg Air Force Base. Commodore Edward H. Watson was leading a group of 14 naval cruisers from San Francisco to San Diego. There wasn't a ship here over five years old. The weather was very unusual. There had been an earthquake in Japan on September 1st, and I don't think they really knew what an earthquake would do to the ocean and how it might affect navigation back in those days. Um, the sea current was unusual, the waves were very high, there was an extremely thick fog, and navigation was quite difficult. They had this brand new technology, but they were afraid to use it, and so they went on their natural uh, naval instincts. Because the battle group was practicing wartime maneuvers, the ships did not slow their speed. Not realizing that they were actually a couple of miles off course, Uh, The lead ship, the USS Delphi, smashed into Rocky Point Argello, a shoreline traveling at 20 knots. He hit it broadside, 23 miles an hour, and the ship split in two instantly. There were 14 ships in a row. Nine of those ships were grounded. Seven of those ships were sunk. 23 sailors died. Commodore Watson was a very smart man. He was highly trained, and so were all of his ship's captains. Yet, in a short while, they became lost. They lost their direction, and they didn't realize the direction that they were going. There's a parallel for us today. You know, there are a lot of very smart people in your world. There are a lot of highly trained people in the world that you lived in, that you live in. And They're lost, and they don't realize the direction that they are heading. And God has raised up his church to be a beacon, to guide people to the truth, to show the way, because Jesus is the way. So, uh, we're going to start in the book of Titus chapter uh, 3, verses 1 and 2. And Titus 3 reminds the church of... Uh, the church's responsibility that we have before a watching world. Look at Titus chapter 3. Uh, by the way, our ushers have a Bible. If anybody need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We're glad to pass one out. We're going to be in Titus chapter 3. And also on your outline, there's a page number uh, f- for those Bibles. 
Titus chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus. Let me remind you that Titus is on the island of Crete. And Paul is writing probably from the city of Corinth. And, and Paul says this to Titus. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. The key there is, it's how to behave before all men. It's how to behave before your government. How to behave before your neighbors. How to behave before your community or your school. That's what he's talking about chapter 3, verse 1. The first thing he tells us is to be subject to rulers and authorities. Uh, it's about our behavior before a watching world. He says, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Uh, Titus is to remind Christians on the island of Crete to be subject to their government authorities. Guess what? They had the same problem in the first century that Christians have today when it comes to government. Same problem. Look how far we've come in 2,000 years. Poor attitudes, critical spirit, um, bad-mouthing. Christians in the first century did not always like their government officials. And the government officials were not always fair. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul reminds uh, us of this. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Next slide. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. The Apostle Paul tells us that government is in place because of God. It's because God designed society, and he designed that government, the structure of government, would rule over people. Now, there's certainly governments that we like to be around, and there are governments that we don't like to be around, but government in itself is established by God. And he wants Titus to remind Christians to be subject, to be submissive, to follow the leadership of their government. Now, let me just remind you that when Paul wrote the Romans 13 or passage, guess who was emperor of the world? Nero. He was not a godly man. In fact, he persecuted Christians. He even tortured Christians. And yet, Paul writes, the norm is submit to your government. Submit to the authorities over you. Like, obey the speed limit. Um, submit and be willing, if you violate the law, is to face the consequences. Pay your ticket or whatever. Uh, that's the norm. Not only that... Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, non-Christians as well, for kings and all those in authority. He's talking about government 
authority, government officials. And uh, not only are we to submit to them, but we are to pray for them that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness because your lifestyle will adorn the gospel or it will malign the gospel. I think I mentioned this last week. Someone has said, the biggest reason for atheism is us. Christians, do you agree or don't agree? The biggest reason for atheism is us. It's the way we live. Are we attractive to Christ or do we detract? Next slide. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is God's political agenda. He wants his people, as a norm, to follow the government, to pray for its leaders, because God's desire is that everybody be saved. And one of the ways that God is going to use, he's going to use the church to attract people to Jesus as we live in our society and in our community. This is God's agenda. Do you have another agenda? So be subject to rulers and authorities. Is a question here, is there any time that I should not obey the government? Well, thank you for asking. I knew that question would come up. Is there any time that I should not obey my government? And the answer is normally no. However, on occasion, if the government ever asks you to do something that's immoral, you do not have to obey. If the government asks you to dishonor God, you are not required to obey. And that happened uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts Chapter 5, verses 28 through 31 is one of those instances. Uh, The apostles had been arrested. Peter had been arrested. And they were told not to speak in the name of Jesus. Do not share the gospel. And the leader said to Peter, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, meaning the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Next slide. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than men. This is the time for civil disobedience. This is not the norm, but this is the time. When when, uh, government asks you to do something that dishonors God. And uh, so let's just keep going. Leave that slide So we are uh, to obey government and we are to be obedient. Back to verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Obedient Obedience to government is the norm. Civil disobedience is the exception. The amazing thing is you and I live in a country where we can practice civil disobedience. We can protest against our government. That's an amazing thing. You can legally protest against your government. You can speak your mind uh, against your government. And you can vote uh, what you believe in. That's an amazing thing. Here's the deal. When you speak against your government, when you disagree, feel free to do that. Just do it in a God-honoring way. Um, Continue in verse 1. Uh, Be ready to do whatever is good. This should be our reputation. 
to do whatever is good. Uh, This is the theme of Titus. It's a very strong theme in chapter 3. To do whatever is good. This is what your government officials uh, should think of you. This is what the government should think of us. We're just willing to do whatever is good. This is is what our police department should think of us. This is what the highway patrol should think of us. The Bridge Church should have a reputation in our community for doing whatever is good. Now, we have taken steps to do what is good. I just call them baby steps. I think we're on the right track, but doing things that are good. For example, we've served Team World Vision and helped uh, to raise funds for clean water in Africa. Uh, clean water in Africa. We've served at Touch twice. Uh, we've served at Hope Gospel Mission, Hope Gospel Bargain Center, Community Table, the Bolton House, the Sojourner's House, the Boys and Girls Clubs, and the Salvation Army. We do these through our growth groups. Those are just steps. It's about doing what is good. And certainly you can do good in your own life without doing it as a group, just by serving others. But this should be the norm. This is a part of who we are and why God has us here today. Verse 2, don't slander anyone. This uh, should be kind of obvious, but don't slander uh, anyone. To slander no one, verse 2. Christians should watch their mouths and bridle their tongues. What are we talking about here? How we relate to our government, first of all. Christians do not have permission to badmouth their government or their employer or their neighbor uh, or a driver that pulls out in front of you. You do not have permission to badmouth people. Um, here's a surprise to some of you. The Bible doesn't guarantee free speech. The Constitution does. The Bible doesn't. You are not free to badmouth political figures. You can disagree with them. You can speak the truth about them, but it better be in an honoring way. Every human being is created in the image of God with God's dignity. They don't always act that way, but God wants us to speak in honoring ways of people. Verse 2, be peaceable and considerate. To slander no one, be peaceable and considerate. This is our proper attitude toward the government and our community. Um, It's especially about our attitude and our actions as we relate to those who do not know Jesus Christ, to non-Christians. Verse 2, show humility to all people. And uh, one of the translations says always to be gentle toward everyone. Show humility, be gentle, not harsh, not hateful. Uh, not righteous, self, uh, self-righteous self rage, but to be humble. In verse 3, remember your life before Christ. Remember your life before Christ. And Paul is just going to step back here. Do you guys remember what your life was like before you met Jesus? Do you remember? Now, some of you came to faith as a child, and you don't have like a big track record where you can remember all those things. But in Titus's day, most of these were adult believers, They heard the gospel as an adult, like me. I remember clearly what my life was like before I became a follower of Jesus. He says in verse 3, at one time, we too were foolish. 
That's true. And he's speaking as a group. He's not speaking that, okay, uh, you as a non-Christian, every one of these applies to you. No, he's speaking to the group. Remember, this this applies to us. There's some of you that each one of these fits. He says, uh, you were foolish. Boy, that was true of me. It means uh, we didn't have true knowledge of God. We didn't realize the direction that we were headed. We didn't realize that there were eternal consequences. We lived like all all that matters is me and now. We were foolish. Also, verse 3, we were disobedient. Uh, I can remember I was disobedient to God. I did not know God. I did not care about God's values. I cared primarily about me, 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 and then Sue. And um, I chose to go my own way. When it came to the Bible, I was not interested. When it came to church, it wasn't on my schedule. Prayer was, not, was nothing, and I didn't care about being kind to people unless there was a benefit for me. We, too, were disobedient. That describes us as a group. We did not follow God's commands. He says, uh, next in verse 3, we, t- we, too, were enslaved to all kinds of passions and pleasures. Before I met Jesus, before I placed my faith in Christ, I lived according to my nature. Now think about this. This is why non-Christians do the things that they do, because it's their nature. That's all they have. Um, I lived according to my nature. I was selfish, self-centered, and self-focused. I drank too much. I was hooked on pornography. I was a chain smoker. I sought happiness in buying things. If I could buy more things, I hoped I would be a little bit happier. I just went back and recounted that I had nine cars before I was 25. Four of those were brand new. I still wasn't happy. Um, We too were enslaved to all kinds of passions and pleasures. Verse 3, we we too lived with malice, envy, and hatred. Um, Paul's saying, you know, we didn't like a lot of people. You have to remember who who Paul is here. He, he's recalling his own life here. He's recalling that his life as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, before he met Christ, he hated Christians. Um, we too lived with malice, envy, and hatred. We didn't like a lot of people. We were critical of people. We thought some people were to be envied. We thought some people were le- less valuable than us. We desired money, position, and titles. We were racists, we were hypocrites. And the point is, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's who we were. That's everybody. We sinned. And um, one of the most important things for you to remember is never be surprised when a non-Christian acts like a non-Christian. We sometimes have expectations that people should act in a certain way. I have expectations about Christians. I don't have expectations about non-Christians. Sadly, some non-Christians behave better than Christians. Isn't that sad? Maybe one of the reasons why atheists aren't interested in God. Thirdly, remember Jesus Christ has changed our present life and future life. On September 29, 1974, at 4.30 in the morning approximately, I was headed in a direction far away from God. And on September 29th, I encountered the true and living God and placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I understood that he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for my sins. 
I didn't expect anything to happen, but he began to change my life. And he put me in a new direction and on a new course, and we call that repentance. And I, my direction changed. And I began to be interested in spiritual things and interested in God's word and learning what God had to say and then thinking, I should probably apply that to my life. And if this is true, then it makes all the difference. There's, there's no messing around. If this stuff is true, then, boy, let's not do it halfway. That's kind of silly. And uh, we are to remember how Jesus is to change, has changed our life. He changed the entire trajectory of my life. And it says in verse 4, it was because of the kindness and love of God our Savior. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, it was because of God's kindness that he sent Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of God's kindness. Jesus grew up in Nazareth because of God's kindness. And Jesus became a public figure and began to teach about the kingdom of God and who God is and what God is like and what the kingdom is all about. And he began to perform miracles and he healed people and he forgave people. And then he died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. It was because of the kindness of God. Romans 5.8, the Apostle Paul writes it this way. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was a demonstration of God's love. It was his kindness. It was for us. By the way, do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe God loves you? I know that I believed one time that God loved the world. I never got that he loved me. He, he knew my name. He knew everything about me. He loved me anyway. That was surprising. It was hard for me to accept. But while we were still sinners, it wasn't because I was good. I was a sinner. He, he loved me. And then it says Christ died for us. It means he took our place. Uh, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's what I deserved because of my sin. The wages of sin is death. I deserve death, but Jesus stepped in and took my place, and he took your place too. Jesus stepped in for you. We didn't get what we deserved. That's justice, that we deserved death. But it was the kindness and love of God our Savior, and he died for us. Verse 5, it was not because of righteous things we had done. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done. When we talked about he saved us, it means he saved us from the penalty or the consequences of sin. I deserve that death. He saved me from that. Uh, he forgave all my sin. I didn't deserve that. He gave me eternal life and heaven as a home. He he made me a citizen of heaven. He made me a child of God. That's what it means that he saved us. So how does a person get saved? Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's about responding to God 
by faith. So he saved us not because of righteous things we had done. It wasn't because of good things. It wasn't because um, anybody went to India and served the poor. That does not earn salvation. Doing good things. There are reasons why a Christ follower serves Christ to serve the poor. But it's not about doing those things to be accepted by God to go to heaven. Isaiah 64, 6 puts it this way. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's it. That's how God views people trying to get to heaven by being good, as if they're somehow going to earn their way. Good works, in God's eyes, when, when you're trying to earn your way to heaven, is like a filthy rag. It's like... Um, a bandage used to wrap infected wounds. That's what filthy rag means. That's how God views us when we try to earn our way. Um, you know, giving money for clean water will not earn your way to heaven. Feeding homeless people will not earn your way to heaven. It is not because of righteous things we had done. We could never, never, never do enough to earn salvation or to earn our way to heaven. Verse 5, it's because of his mercy. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is getting what we... Uh, is not getting what we deserve. I deserved justice. I deserve... You know, everybody's worried about, where's the God of justice? Well, all of us deserve death. That's justice. The wages of sin is death. Um, and grace is getting something we don't deserve. It's God's unmerited favor. Uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I've just been saying that. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's grace. A gift. It's a gift of God. It's not because I earned it, I worked for it. It was given. It was given by God. It was a gift. And it is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He saved us, next in verse 5, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Some churches teach that the washing of rebirth refers to baptism. The idea that for example, when a child is baptized, that they are washed and spiritually cleansed by the water and they have a rebirth. But here it says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The washing of rebirth is not water baptism. It is the work of of the Holy Spirit. It was a spiritual cleansing and a spiritual renewal. Water baptism is a picture of spiritual cleansing. Uh, the problem, does this teach uh, baptismal regeneration because that's what it's called when somebody talks about being baptized to be saved? And uh, my answer is absolutely not. This teaches regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And uh, another key passage 
that uh, has taught um, baptismal regeneration is John chapter 3. Let's look at John 3. That we didn't get 1 and 2. Um, there, now, there was a man uh, named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at n- night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So this is an encounter that Jesus has by um, uh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was an older man. He was a highly trained, highly educated, religious professional, and he was a part of the number one, the top ruling council in Israel. He comes to Jesus. He gives him a, uh, an honoring title. He calls him rabbi. And Jesus is just like a 33-year-old man without a formal education. And he says, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. Now, not everybody believed that, but Nicodemus did. He had been watching Jesus. He was watching what Jesus taught, and he saw the miracles. And he knew these miracles were pointing to God. And so he comes to Jesus at night. So nobody, so he's not going public yet. It's a secretive. Uh, Next slide. Uh, For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He knows you can't do these miracles unless you're really from God. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. There's a brand new concept in the Bible right there, born again. If you've ever heard of this concept, it's from the Bible and it's from Jesus. This is the the, the origination right here. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven. You can't be accepted by God unless you are born again. Next slide. So what does it mean to be born again? How can someone be born when they are old? I like Nicodemus. He's just really practical. He's not afraid to ask. And so don't you be afraid to ask questions, all right? Nicodemus asks, surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. He's he's thinking about this, born again. How can you be born again? Can you go into your mother? No, I don't think that'll work. And, you know, it's kind of obvious here, but he's he's just saying it out loud to Jesus right here. And Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And right there, people want to read baptism, born of water. Is that baptism? Do you have to be baptized first, born of the water, and then later you get born of the Spirit? Is that what Jesus is teaching? There are two major denominations that teach that, that you have to be baptized with water before you're born of the Spirit. Next slide. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to flesh. What does it mean to be born of water? Ladies, what's the question you get asked right before your delivery? Has your water broke? It's physical birth. There is a physical birth, and then there is a spiritual birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's pretty normal. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. That's something new that Jesus is teaching. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The wind blows. You see the leaves move. You see the grass move. You see the flag blow, but you can't see the wind. The same is true with the Holy Spirit. You can see the effects of the Spirit, but you can't see the Spirit. I would argue with you that I have the Holy Spirit in me right now. Can you see the Holy Spirit? No, but if you watch my life, you should be able to see the effects of the Holy Spirit. And I should be able to see the effects of the Holy Spirit in your life as well. 
because that's how the Holy Spirit works. Um, 1 Peter one twenty three. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. How does anybody get born again? It's through the word of God, which includes the gospel of your salvation. Well, what's that? Christ died for your sins. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. That is the message. It won victory over the sin penalty. Um, Born again through that living, enduring word of God. Um, Also in Titus chapter 3, verse 6, he gave his Holy Spirit generously to all who are saved by faith, uh, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. I'm going to quickly go through here. God has given those who are followers of Christ, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, he has given the Holy Spirit generously. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1. We are gifted by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, We are empowered by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5. Um, You have been given a generous portion of God's Spirit. And that goes with this whole idea of being born again. Verse 7, he justified us by his grace and gave us the hope of eternal life. He says, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life, being justified by his grace. Being justified means God has declared you as a follower of Christ righteous. It's a legal proclamation in the court of heaven if you are justified. It means you're forgiven. And God declares you as righteous. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I'll never deserve it. But it's a pronouncement of God justified, justified, never sinned, is another way to say it. Romans 5, 1 and 2 puts it this way. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, that's how you get justified. It's through faith. It's not by works, not by righteous things we've done. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, so whom we have gained access by faith, there it is, into his grace, which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So he justified us by his grace. Uh, Verse 8. It is excellent and profitable for everyone to be devoted to what is good. Look at this. This is a trustworthy saying, says the Apostle Paul. I want you to stress these things. This is what's supposed to happen in the church. We are to stress these things. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? To doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Everyone. It's for everyone to do what is good. So if you as a follower of Christ do what is good, it's good for you. It's it's, uh, excellent and it's praiseworthy and it's good for you. And you're going to benefit to allow God to work through you. You're going to experience God working through you. And you're going to be encouraged by that. It's going to motivates you and it's going to empower you when God works through you. But if you do good, there's going to be people who benefit from your doing good, like somebody who's hungry or somebody who's homeless or somebody who needs clean water. They're going to benefit. It's going to be good for them. And it's going to be good for the watching world to see what a Christ follower does. So they get the picture of what God is really like. That's God's plan. 
That's God's plan for evangelism of the earth is through Christians who do what is good. Verses 9 through 11, we're, coming, we're winding down the chapter. Watch out for divisive people. Uh, he says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. He's talking about the Old Testament. Um, there were controversies. There, they, they argued over genealogies. You know the genealogies that you read in the Old Testament that put you to sleep? Well, they argued about them. They made up stories about them. They told stories that there was no record of. And then they argued. Um, avoid foolish controversies because these are unprofitable, unprofitable and useless. Verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. This is important to the Apostle Paul. This is important to the church. If you have a divisive person, somebody who uh, wants to uh, bring division in the church, to separate the church, uh, to come between people, to bring in a, a doctrine that's false, um, unity in the church is important. And the Apostle Paul says, if there's a divisive person, go to him, warn him. It's just like Jesus taught in Matthew uh, chapter 18. Go to him, if, and if he doesn't change, go to him a second time. If he doesn't change, go to him a third time. And then get him out of the church. After the third time, get him out of the church. Because the unity in the body is way too important. Now, Paul gives uh, uh, scripture about how to go about this, but, but to be gentle, to be humble. Uh, to speak the truth in love, to seek to repair this relationship if it's all possible. But the bottom line is, um, after that, have nothing to do with him. And he says, verse 11, you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and are self-condemned, meaning they're going to stand before God. Final remarks, quickly, Titus uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, we're going to finish it out here. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, we've already heard about Tychicus. He has carried some letters for Paul. He's been in the book of Acts on several occasions in other letters. We don't know anything about Artemis, but Paul is probably in Corinth, and he's going to send these two men to Crete, and he wants to relieve Titus, who is in Crete. And he says, do your best to, be, to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. So Paul wants Titus to come to him and so that they can meet in Nicopolis for the winter. Verse 13, do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. Little is known about Zenos. We know a lot about Apollos. He was a great orator. He was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila because uh, he needed some sound doctrine. He was a great preacher, but he didn't know the truth. And they uh, helped him along and discipled him and mentored him. Um, and on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Everything that they need. This was uh, the Christian way. Uh, if somebody came through, a traveling evangelist, a missionary, well, it was all about the church to help in every way. You need a place to stay. You need money. You need a letter of reference. It was all about doing everything. Verse 14, our people, here it is again, must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for the urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. People in Crete tended to be kind of lazy and unproductive, and Paul gets their attention on this one. 
They must devote to themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for the urgent needs. They need to make enough money. They need to work hard so that they can give and help other people. Help out with urgent needs. Not only supply their own needs, but other people's urgent needs. And that they ought not live unproductive lives. Verse 15, everyone with me sends you greetings. Typical kind of ending. Greet those who love us in the faith and grace be with you all. Let's see a quick map. Okay, this is a map we've seen earlier. So we got Rome, the Roman Empire. You got Rome way on the left. Go down to the bottom here, you have Crete. And just for your reference, you can see Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. And those other cities are where churches were. So Titus is at Crete on the island. Paul is in Corinth right above. And Paul is going to Nicopolis. And that's where Paul wants to meet Titus. And so the key point, our people must devote themselves in doing what is good. This is how the church should function. Sound doctrine leads to sound practice. Sound doctrine is biblically accurate and spiritually healthy. Sound doctrine leads to spiritually healthy living. Sound doctrine holds forth the true gospel of Christ. It doesn't take people very long to get off the course when it comes to the gospel. Ninety years ago today, Commodore Edward Watson led his battleship group of nine cruisers right into the shoreline, all with good intentions. And there are people all around us who are very smart and they have good intentions, but they're going the wrong way. And God has raised us up. God has raised the church up so that we could show them who Jesus is and what he's like. Let's stand for prayer. Thank you, Father, for the book of Titus and just a reminder to focus on the truth. And that sound doctrine is important. It's about being spiritually healthy. It's totally connected to the way we live and the foundation of how we live. It's connected to who you are and how you've revealed yourself. It's connected to the instructions that you have for us. God, I pray that um, as a result of truth, we might be a people who is ready to do that which is good so the world around us will know who Jesus is. Amen.